Uh, this morning, we continue in our journey through the book of Colossians, uh, a study of Christ above all, the preeminence of Christ in all things, which is Paul's point in, as, he, as he walks through the entire book. In chapter 2, where we are now, we're going to look at verses 8 to 10, but in the rest of chapter 2, Paul uh, wrestles with and, and uh, does battle with, so to speak, those things which uh, interfere with, get in the way of, obscure the preeminence of Christ in his church. And so Paul, and this week we're going to talk a little bit about human traditions and the things that we grow to love and to deal with in the life of the church that, that sometimes have really nothing to do with Jesus. Next week we'll be talking about, or in the, in the weeks ahead actually, we'll be looking at uh, that next section where really Paul lays out a pure gospel of grace as it is in Christ Jesus and that it's about what God has done and accomplished and not about what we can do. Um, and sometimes that legalism enters into the life of the church. And then finally, we'll be looking at, as we move further into the chapter, uh, really false versions of holiness. Because sometimes in the, in the church, what we do is set up standards that, that are not biblical uh, and try to keep them and feel good about keeping them. But they really, again, have nothing to do with what God has commanded. Um, and so there, there's a lot that we have to contend with. Paul did, Jesus did, Paul did, the reformers did. We'll see that this morning in trying to help the church with what we're calling this sermon this morning, sola Christus. It's one of the five solas that come out of the Reformation, sola fide, only by grace, sola gratia, only by grace, sola fide, only by faith, uh, sola scriptura, only the scripture, which is where Paul is coming from, things that are not according to Christ, things that are not according to the Bible, and yet they can become so important to us that it begins to obscure the things that are truly important. And soli Christus, only Christ should fill our vision, only Christ should have our affection, only Christ should have our heart and our love and our passion. Uh, he is the one that we should fight and, uh, and cling to, fight for and cling to, rather than some of the other things that we tend to cling to and fight for. So let's uh, dive in in these first couple of verses that we get in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And Paul writes and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, because in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Father, we pray that uh, we would love your word above all else, that we wouldn't just say it, but we would do it, that we would love your word above all else, that our fullness would be in Christ before and above all things, that he would fill our vision, that he would be the object of our passion, that you would open our hearts and our minds and see those things in our minds and in our lives that obscure the pureness of what you have given us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Paul's concern throughout the book of Colossians is on the preeminence of Christ. Christ above all, 
his supremacy in everything. Just as the reformers expressed it in sola Christus, only Christ. That's what Paul is saying throughout the entire book, only Christ, because he says, if you have Jesus Christ, I mean, really have him, the Lord Jesus, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God, if, if you really have him, when you have him, he says, you have everything. You don't need anything else. We don't live like that's true. That's what Paul goes up against here in this text and in the passages as, as this section unfolds. He goes up against that, that, that struggle in the human heart that though we have been given everything in Christ and yet our, our, our affections are tied to things of the earth in such a way uh, that we're weighed down and don't always enjoy the fullness of what God has given us. And God is a jealous God. In the best sense of that word, God is jealous that the fullness of the gift that he's given us would be our experience, that we would be free, that we would be satisfied, that we would be full in that sense in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Which is why he says, beware, or see to it. Verse eight, he says, see to it which can be translated there and elsewhere, beware, take heed, be on your guard, that kind of a word. Be careful that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. By the way, in your bulletin, I've switched points one and two. So you're looking at point two, and I don't know uh, if this has made its way out there. But here, we're, we're in, in your bulletin. I think it was printed as to deceptive traditions, verse 8. He says, see to it, be on your guard against the danger of being taken captive by other things. Philosophy, empty deceit, things that sound good, sound spiritual, but aren't quite right, things that are according to human tradition, human thinking, human ways of doing things, even according to the elemental spirits of the world. He says, be careful that you're not taken captive by these things. When he says take captive, it's a word that was used militarily and in the culture. It was a common use. It simply meant to capture somebody or something and to carry it away as plunder. Uh, carried away captive. And he says, don't, don't be taken captive and carried away from the fullness that we have in Christ to lose sight of that full. Because you know, it's obviously not a physical way that we're going to be taken captive. right? But he's saying that we can still, spiritually, in the ways that we think, in the ways that we practice our Christianity, lose sight of the fullness that God intends for us, to lose the experience that is supposed to be the sufficiency of Christ for us, for everything and in all things. But what could lead our minds and our hearts away from a pure faith and experience of Christ, which all of us, when we hear it, would, would certainly want? I don't think there's anybody who would say, you know, yeah, I don't really want a, a pure, you know, full, satisfying experience of Jesus Christ as my life you know, in my heart and soul and salvation, you know, I want that to be obscured. But he is saying, nonetheless, whether that's what we want or not, it happens. And, and unless we see to it, unless we take heed, it very well may happen that we become taken captive in big ways and small ways, 
led, a, led astray. But what kinds of things? He says philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world. So philosophy, that's a word most of you would know. Phileo is the word for love, one of the words for love. Phileo, uh, Sophia, to, the lover of wisdom. And it's a, it's a word for those who love wisdom and pursue it, but it came to be that word which represented basically connoting any elaborate system of thought. So any ways of thinking. So he says from philosophy are ways of thinking that are not according to Christ. Right? And that's where it all ends up at the end of that verse in verse 8. Things that are not according to Christ. Things that really, in the end, ultimately, when you boil it down and strip it away, really have nothing to do with Jesus. Other ways of thinking that have grown up in the way that we do what we do. Paul's concern, ways of thinking that particularly, and he's not just talking about philosophies out there, the humanistic philosophies necessarily that are out there. Paul's concern, he's writing to the church, he's concerned about the philosophy, the ways of thinking that have infiltrated the church. Right? He's talking to the church about the way we're thinking. And at this point, as, he, as you read through chapter 2 and the rest of the way that they're thinking and approaching their spirituality and their spiritual life and their church life, and he's saying that there are ways of thinking that have infiltrated the church and are drawing you away from a pure worship of Christ. You see it in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath. You know, things that we do in ways that we do worship in the church or things that we do, drinking and food that you can talk about, uh, we'll talk about in weeks ahead that ultimately, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come. 17, 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on what? Asceticism, worship of angels, going into detail about visions, being puffed up without reason, with a sensuous mind, but not holding fast to the head. So there are a lot of those kinds of things that through history have infiltrated the church. Paul was specifically having to deal probably with the early elements of a Gnosticism, sort of an early mysticism that was infiltrating the church and drawing people into a secret knowledge and secret experiences, that vision of angels and essential experiences that in uh, some ways is still alive in the church uh, and that is dealt with. But he looks at some Gnosticism. Some see what we call Essenism. If you heard of the Essenes are the ones who in Qumran and we have the... Uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the ones who wrote those, but it was a sect that had pulled away and some of their way they did spiritual life and, and thought about what it meant to be holy and to follow God. And some of Paul was definitely dealing with in, in some of his other letters, and many see it in here, are Judaizers. You know, that is um, Jews who have become Christians and come into the church but are still very attached to Old Testament ways of thinking and doing things and are constantly trying to foist those ways onto followers of Jesus when, when Jesus has set us free from so much of that. And so you've got these ways of thinking, always trying to impose ways of thinking and behaving on, on the people of God that are just not according to Christ and are not in your Bible. I, my birthday was on Friday, Friday the 13th, <laughs> 53 for the inquiring mind who want to know. <laughs> they, they said it's a great day to travel because people stay home. 
Seriously, they, 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 they don't, they take it off, some people take it off of work, they don't fly, they don't want to be in their car. I've been in hotels that don't have a 13th floor, you'll see on the little button, there's a 12 to 14, where'd it go? Don't the people of 14 know they're really on 13? <laughs> but there's superstition, isn't there? I mean, just, you know, little things, but there's superstition that creeps in. I've always thought that the 13 was lucky because it was my birthday. You just claim that, right? But, but, but in Jesus, superstition is just plain silly. All of it is. Black cats and mirrors and ladders and, you know, whatever it is, the, the stepping on the cracks or whatever it is. My friends, Jesus is Lord of all, right? He says in verse 10, you've been filled in him who is the head and the rule of all authority. I'm not afraid of black cats or numbers or days or, you know, all that junk that is, that is infiltrated the culture, but infiltrates the church, you know, that we come to church and then we go home in the Sunday paper and read our horoscope to see what's going to, you know, no, that is not according to Christ Jesus. The philosophies and ways of thinking, and there are so many that enter in, and we'll talk about some of the legalisms and those kind of things that enter in in the weeks ahead, but empty deceits, and, and I think it's just sort of a summary of anything that sounds good, that sounds spiritual. Do you know how many times I have conversations about stuff, you know, and the arguments being made to me, they sound good. They even sound spiritual. Sometimes they sound super spiritual. You know, it's like, wow, you know, that's a level beyond anything even the Bible requires. You know, even beyond what God himself requires, you know, but you've gone there. That, you know, but it's that sense of above and beyond what, it can sound really good, but the question is going to become, is it according to the scripture? Is it according to the word of God? Is it according to the freedom and the life that we have in Christ? It strips all those things away. He says its problem would be that this, some of these ways of thinking, these philosophies, these fine-sounding arguments, the empty deceit, is it, the problem is it's according to human tradition and the elemental, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Human invention, you know, rules, ways of thinking, practices that become part of the church, and oftentimes they're, they're fine. I mean, we got to do it some way, right? You know, we've got to make choices, and each culture sort of determines how you do what you do in church. But you just say you need to recognize that 90% of what we do here isn't in the Bible. You know, it's just most of it isn't there. What, what is there, what we do, the core elements that is according to Christ is when you come, we will pray and we will preach the scripture, and we will sing praises to God, and we will, uh, you know, stand in, in his word in everything that we do. It will be communicated. The gospel, in so many ways, will be recapitulated and, and taught to you and go forth. So what we do, the shape of what we do in worship is, is in the scripture. But so many of the ways of how you do that are not. Do you pray written prayers, or do you pray extempore? doesn't say, really. It just says you should pray, right? You know, but does it say this way or that way? Does it say you should, how are you supposed to do it? You know, do you have a pulpit or do you just stand out here holding my Bible and talk? Well, it doesn't say, does it? Right? There's just a thousand ways where it just doesn't say this is the way we do it. This is, there are many traditions that have entered in and they're fine. Don't get me wrong. I like to set my, my down and have my notes, but but there's not anything right about it or wrong. So I'm just saying, if you were to strip down, just if you were to take a minute and sit down and say, how many of the things in this room, the Bible tell us to do it like that? Or tell us not to do it like that? 
This was an exercise when I was doing a mission trip, uh, and, and they had said, you know, when you're going into another culture with the gospel, the problem is you're, you're going to want to import all of your American, Western, cultural, historical, traditional ideas of what church is into that church. And, and if you go into that church, I went to India that summer, and I said, if you go into that church with those ideas, you will, you will judge it, and you will be unhappy with it, and you'll, you'll, you'll want to change it. And, and instead of bringing them Jesus, you'll bring them American way of doing church, which is just, you know, not the true. And so we did this exercise of stripping down, literally getting a piece of paper and saying, what are the things that are in the scripture according to the word of the living God that must be done this way in our, in our, and, and that's what we take with us in a sense as we go. An agile faith that can jump into any cultural clothing because it is only fixed on those things that are according to Christ and not in whatever cultural clothes it happens to be wearing at the moment. Human tradition, human invention that is not founded in revelation, but in in practical experience. In verse 23, he calls it, as you go down, as we get down there, what he calls, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom, and what they do is promote self-made religion. And so we have to be careful versus a, what is our self-made versus a God-given religion. And then he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world, principalities and authorities, that he gets down to is what Paul says in many of his writings are the principalities and authorities and powers. He's talking about spiritual powers. According to the elemental things of this world um, that have influence, ultimately, because there's nothing, and here, here this is the best way, the enemy would love for us nothing more than for us to be concerned, very concerned, about all the wrong things. Right? Isn't that what the enemy would love to do? Get a church all wrapped up about concerned and passionate, but, but when all stripped away, it has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the gospel, the kingdom, the glory of God, the mission of the church. Right? The enemy would love nothing more than that. And so it is part of his work, this infiltrating the church with philosophies and vain, you know, fine-sounding arguments and human traditions that, that get us all wrapped up about stuff that in the end may or may not have anything to do with the marching orders we've been given by Jesus. The truth about Jesus is like a ship. I was thinking about this. You know, if you think of a ship sitting in water, especially in the old days when they were made of wood, and when it sat in the water, the part of the ship that was below the water line would begin to be getting crusted with barnacles and, and shipworms, which were a kind of a clam, but that they would bore into the wood. And on top of those, the seaweed would collect, and it would. I actually had a picture of it. I was going to bring it in. You know, this didn't work. But, you know, when, when you pull the ship out of water, you can see hanging off the bottom of it, are all, it's encrusted with all this stuff and the seaweed hanging down. They say that it would, a ship would become so encrusted, it would cut the ship speed in half. It would just create so much drag on the ship that its speed would be cut in half. It couldn't, its forward progress was, was hindered you know, by all this stuff. And so they would have to drag it out of the water into dry dock to see what has become encrusted so they can clean it off because it will eventually compromise the integrity of the the ship's hull and its ability to float and go anywhere. 
And so they had to constantly take it out and clean off the incrustations. This is, my friends, this is the Reformation. Right? This is what they did. They pulled the ship into dry dock to see all the stuff that over the last, you know, through the Middle Ages had become encrusted on the bottom of it. We said to celebrate the 500th year of the anniversary this year. So 500 years ago, they dragged a big ship of Christian, Christendom out into dry dock and started looking at all the encrustations, things that have become on the ship but are not part of the ship. And it becomes hard, though, when the ship is sitting in the water to know where the ship ends and the incrustations begin because it all sits below the water line, like out of, out of sight where we're not really aware of it until the ship starts to slow down and to not function the way that it's supposed to. And so in the Reformation, they pull it out and look at the beliefs and the rules and the practices and all the stuff that the church became about that simply were not in the Bible. They had been taken over by the culture, by a culture. And so the reformers were called iconoclasts. Icons are images, you know, and, and in those days there were a lot of images and they literally were pulling down images of saints and angels and things that were prayed to and, and those kinds. Of, so they were iconoclasts, but it became, it became a word that described anyone who attacked or went after cherished and traditional beliefs and practices with the belief that they are based on error or superstition and they're not in the Bible, right? And they go after them because they believe that they're not part of the ship, per se. They become attached to the ship, but they really have nothing to do with Jesus in the end. Church had become encrusted, and so the reformers opposed ways of thinking and ways of worship and ways of holiness that just were not biblical. Jesus, where did they get the idea to do this? And one of the reasons they went sola scriptura, they went back to the scripture and they saw Jesus doing this. Right? Do you remember when Jesus shows up, basically to the church, you know, they showed up, the reformers to a church that was 1,400 years old. Jesus shows up to a church before them that was 1,400 years old too, the Old Testament church. And he shows up and he has the same thing. He's proclaiming a pure gospel that's in himself. The work of God is this, believe in me, come to me, abide in me, love me, follow me, listen to me, right? Jesus proclaims his pure I will satisfy, if you will come to me, all who are weary in labor and, and laboring, I will satisfy you. I will give you rest for your souls. But as he's proclaiming this thing, he has to, what does he bump up against? The church and its traditions. Dude, 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 you're stepping on toes. Right? You know, this, this, this whole thing that is purely about you. So you get things like Mark chapter 7, verse 5 to 7. He says this. The scriptures and the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus and they ask him, why are your disciples not walking according to the tradition of the elders? Now just switch a couple of words in there. How, many, how often have you heard that question? Right? That's not the way we've always done it. Right? It's just another version of the same question. Right? Why are they not walking according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands. In other words, you know, it become the tradition to wash your hands before a meal. It was not like we make our children with soap, but ceremonially, it was a ceremonial washing, and it was part of their spiritual cleanliness, and the elders did it for a long time. They expected everybody else to do it for the long time, and when Jesus shows up, they expect him and his disciples to do it, and Jesus, Jesus didn't follow men's traditions. He just didn't, and it got him into all kinds of trouble. Like, I'm, I don't do that. And neither do my disciples. 
Um, he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? It's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Like when we start to impose our tradition as necessary, right? Jesus says we, we're, we're teaching traditions of men as if it were scripture, right? This was the number one issue in the Reformation. A lot of people think it was about this, that, or the other thing. And it was the issue of the Reformation was authority. Where does authority lie? In the traditions of the church or in the scripture? And when you go with scripture, it begins to strip away many of the traditions of the church because they are, as Jesus says, just the commandments of men. Tradition can be a fine thing, and don't get me wrong, and this is where, you know, uh, tradition is a fine thing. And, and basically, tradition is the way you do church in any given culture. And, and we have to do church, and we have to, in a sense, enculturate it. We have to sit in something, a pew, a chair, a rocking chair, on the floor. You know, for the first 1,200 years of church, they stood. And it wasn't until the late Middle Ages that they put benches out, you know, because benches cost money. And there was just not, you know, and it wasn't, until, it wasn't until the late Middle Ages into the 1600s when they started putting benches, backs on them because the wealthier people wanted backs and his church became more, you know, and then eventually, I don't know when they put pads on them. I'm not sure that was, well, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it just is something that comes into the church. The ways that we've always done it, and we start feeling like it's God's way. Like, church, I had a, I had a roommate in college who came to church with me and I uh, brought him to, to church and, and it was the first time he'd been to church in ages and on the way home I asked him, what did you think of church? And he just shook his head and said, I couldn't get over sitting in chairs. It, uh, you know, I don't know why you get, you know, there were no pews, it just didn't feel like church to me. And that, and that was literally the extent of the conversation. I thought the sermon was very good, you know, and I worshiped with all my heart. And on the way home, though, for him, church was simply, it had become all about something that ultimately has nothing to do with Jesus. I cannot imagine standing before him on the last day and him saying, you should have sat in pews. <laughs> I just don't see it. I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to get there, and there are, there are things like that. But I, I mean, I, I'm trying to make it lighthearted, but brother and sister, my own soul does the same thing. We like what we like, you know what I mean? And, and that's the thing about it. It's, it's not even so much ways of thinking that have infiltrated the church, it's ways of feeling that have infiltrated the church. Because we feel about things that the tradition of the elders are things that have been there a long time. And so it's about how we, it's our feelings that is often, it's ways of thinking and ways of feeling as well as practices that infiltrated the church. And he says, oh, my friends, he says, these things, he says, are not according to Christ for, for or because in him the whole fullness of the deity. Like, he says, God was in Christ in all of his fullness, right? All this stuff that we're talking about and worried about, right? And sometimes we're worried about it, right? He said, all that stuff we're worried about, don't you know the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ, the person, the living person. And in him, what does he say? The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. You know, this is a doctrine, this is a sermon for Christmas. The whole glorious total of what God is, the supreme divine nature in its infinite entirety is in Christ, right? That God became flesh 
in Christ. And so the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him. If you, if you thought about that for the rest of the year and nothing else, and really just let it pick out the fullness of what I've just said, that you, the, the fullness of God is in Christ, and you have been filled in Him who is the fullness of God, the head over every rule and authority. There's no other rule or authority that has any power over you. But your loyalty and your service is to Christ and to His gospel and to His holiness and to His glory alone. Without challenge, without competition. The NIV says, in Him you have been brought to fullness. The KJV says, in Him you are complete. Everything that is in Christ Jesus has been given to us. You go back to verse 18 of chapter 1 and he says, right, that Christ is the head of his body, the church. The head of the body that is the church is this Christ who's the head of the body. Everything in the head like flows down. My head tells my body what to do in every way. And, you know, the thoughts that make it live come from my head. And he says the, that Christ is the head of his body and, and all the fullness is yours. There's nothing else you should be so full of this. We possess a full salvation. It's not Jesus did what he could and now, and now we got to do our best. No, he did it all and it is finished and he has given us this salvation, not, not a little bit righteous and now I got to be good to be, it's 100% righteous in Jesus Christ, a salvation that is full and as complete as can be and he hands it to us and there is forgiveness and there is mercy and he adopts you as his child and he connects you to his son and he says, you are his body, the church, his bride and he fills you with his spirit and he begins a good work in you that he will carry on to completion to the day of Christ and he says that, that this fullness of salvation is the fullness of every blessing that is in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many more blessings do you need? Since you don't need any more you've got them. And in fact, sometimes we need to strip away some of the other junk so that we can enjoy and experience and remember and know the, the blessings that are ours in him that get so lost in the fray, the forest for the trees that start to engulf us. Psalm 23 says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Right? We are filled in him. Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In many ways in Christ, we are lords of the universe. Not apart from him, and don't hear that in the wrong way, but he says we are seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he says that he is the fullness of God. And he says in him, you have been given a fullness. And it lifts us above. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
Paul is addressing ways of thinking that have infiltrated the church in just about 30 years. The church had only been around. Jesus came and, and he dealt with it as he tried to preach a full and free gospel of, of himself and, uh, and then butted up against and had to contend with other ways of thinking that had infiltrated his church. Paul, the church is not 30 years old and Paul is having to deal with it, right? In the time of the reformers, they're having to deal with it, right? We remember as they are um, approaching the church, they're having to deal with the exact same issues. In other words, it happened in the time leading to Jesus. It happened in the time leading to Paul and the apostles. It happened in the time leading to the Reformation. It's been 500 years from the Reformation. Have we escaped it? And I would simply say, it's one of those things, that's why one of the, the, the calls of the Reformation was semper reformanda, which means always reforming, always reforming. They reformed at that time, and he says, as the church goes on, the church must constantly pull itself onto dry dock and examine what has been encrusted on the, that, is, that has become attached to the church that really has nothing to do with Jesus and the truth that is in him, so that we're not taken captive to ways of thinking and practices and rules that, that are of human origin and not biblical. So that church does not become about things that have really nothing to do with Jesus and simply distract us and keep us from enjoying what he has given us, from having an agile faith that can be plopped in a prison and chained to a wall and will still worship. You know, it can be plopped in India and in its culture and its whatever and still be able to preach Christ and worship and be a part of the church. It could be in Africa or in any part of our country or any century in our country in any place in time. An agile faith that is, finds its fullness in Christ and Christ alone. We should not look for our fullness anywhere else. My friends, we are so distracted looking for fullness things to entertain us, things to make us happy, things to fill our lives and fill our time and occupy our minds. And the whole fullness of deity is in Christ. And Christ is yours. And you are his. And he says, seek me. Abide in me. Come to me. I will give you rest. I will fill you to the fullness. Your cup will overflow. I will satisfy the deepest longings of your souls. I will give you love and joy and peace to dominate your souls. And, and, and it will have nothing to do with all those trappings. It will be, in fact, all those things, as that, that song says, when we gaze on his face, all those things fall away. A love and a joy and a peace. That has everything to do with Jesus. And then a patience and a kindness and a goodness. Oh, that we, would, that we would contend for the fullness of his spirit and the fruits that come by it. And our Christian life would be about that. More than and maybe nothing more than that. Wesley said, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Could everything else be stripped away and you be able to say that in truth? Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than everything I find in thee. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true and for your Christ who is the fullness 
of our God and the fullness of your gift to us. You have given us yourself in the person of your Son that we should be your people and you would be our God and our lives would be full of your presence and your glory, the fullness of your spirit, the fullness of your fruits, the love and the joy and the peace. And Father, help us to pull our ship onto dry dock and to peel away the stuff that simply is distracting us from truly enjoying you in the fullness of your gift to us. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.